So it's been, it's been a few months, but yes, you were you were about to talk about what you experienced with the noting. I'd like for you to talk about that. So yeah, so with the noting at the beginning, it was it was nice because um, I felt like um, it. I, I saw some stuff about well, how do I put it? The way that like the con the continuity of things was kind of emphasized the way the, the way that we're it's the mind's always moving around and just like focusing on one thing at a time, and uh, it also helped to I feel like it it made it a little bit more clear that clearly these things can't be me if they're just occurring, mm -hmm. but um, by com by continuously doing it, I kind of got away from like the the basic just anapanasati. Uh, gladdening the mind meditation that I had been doing, and I noticed that I uh, I wasn't really um, happy. I, I was feeling very anxious, and so I came back and just did the original uh, meditation you had given me a long time ago, which was just um, sit down, watch your breath, and enjoy it. And it was really simple and easy, and it just felt really good. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you for that testimonial. This is something sure. that um, um, actually it's it's taken a while for me to be able to understand what was really going on. But now that I do understand, uh, it's it's actually quite simple. That um, the Buddha was very clear in many, many places and in many, many different ways. He talks about the hindrances. Uh, it's also referred to as obstructions. Uh, the entire sutta number 22, the simile of the snake, of being able to grab the, uh, the Dhamma from the correct perspective. If you grab it from the wrong end, like you grab a snake the wrong way, it's going to bite you. You with the uh, and so the simile of the snake is all about a monk who thinks that uh, the obstructions to the mind are not really that obstructive. That's the point. Okay. And that here we're talking about obstructions as specifically as hindrances. Now, many people, when they read this without a, a firm grasp of what the word obstruction means, they think that, oh, well, this guy thinks that going to the brothel or going to the bar or robbing banks are obstructions to the Dhamma, which anyone would say, well, yeah. But <laughs> the point is, here that this guy is thinking not at that level of oh i can go do really really bad things and it's not going to obstruct my practice very few people ever are are in that place once they begin to understand but what he's saying the obstruction here are the hindrances of the mind and so this sutta about the simile of the snake is no you've got to grasp the dhamma the right way because if you grasp it wrongly then you'll think that it's okay to have obstructing thoughts and then you will have obstructions in your life because of your obstructing thoughts in um in several suttas including in the ding and the kaya and in the majjhima nikaya uh number sutta number 39 it gives five analogies 
that hindrances, having hindrances in the mind in this moment is very much like having uh, you're wandering in the desert or that you're out on a journey with all of your baggage. And you can imagine yourself that imagine that you've been on a long plane flight from uh, hours and hours at, at this airport, hours and hours on this plane and hours and hours at the next airport going and doing and whatnot. And finally, you get to your destination, which is a nice hotel room. What do the people do? They set down those bags and they lay on that bed and uh, relax. Finally. Finally, I can relax after all of that traveling. Well, that's exactly the way that we want to treat the hindrances is finally we can relax. We've come home. Another one is uh, uh, feeling in debt. That, wow, it really is uh, pleasant feeling to pay off the mortgage. Many people, when they pay off the mortgage to their house, they have a big celebration and they burn the mortgage in the fire or something like that, because of what a relief it is to be out of debt so that we don't have to keep making those car payments or pay that credit card off or whatever it is. And yet most people are deeply in debt in the United States and deeply in debt in other ways all over the world. So the feeling of being free from debt and not owe anybody anything, that's such a relief. Well, guess what? We owe people when we think about them, that means that we owe them time in our mind and we don't owe anybody anything. When we're free from hindrances, we're out of debt. And so therefore we do not have to pay attention or pay anything to anyone. And another analogy is about being in jail, being in prison. Why? Because we can't go where we want to go. We can't go to that pleasant place. We've got to, we're, we're imprisoned by these thoughts that we have of suffering. Prisons and hells and confinement and uh, no feeling of freedom at all. But when the mind is free from the hindrances, now we can feel open and expansive and free. Mm. So, these are the examples that the Buddha uses uh, in Sutta number 39. He also talks about the hindrances that is obstructions and hindrances. He lists the five hindrances in Sutta number uh, 48, but he speaks of them as obstructions there. This is the place where the word obstruction in Pali and the word hindrance in, in Pali, the Narava, I forgot what the word obstruction was, but they're, they're the same thing in the sense that we're not talking about a big obstruction um, like going and burning down the school building or something like that, but the big obstructions are the first thought about build, burning down the school. That's the real obstruction, the hindrance. The anger that we had before we thought about burning the school down is how much I hate the teacher you know, or, or whatever like that. And so these are the, the obstructions or those thoughts that happen very quickly in the mind. And so in Sutta number 48, the Buddha then speaks of it as um, that when we recognize that no matter how obstructed the mind gets, which means no matter how often or how persistent or how 
painful these thoughts are, these hindering thoughts, we can throw them out. And this is really, really the first step on the path. This is the stage that's called the first knowledge that's so important for the student to recognize because this is basically when we are in the process of developing the skill of right attitude. This is the right attitude to have that I can come out of my crap. And I can do it right now. I do not have to uh, lay and wallow in my uh, misery or in my self-pity. I have seen dukkha enough to get out of it. That's the reteaching of Ayanapanasati, and that's exactly why the step 10 of gladdening the mind is there. And that's also the indication of the point where the Buddha said when he was uh, under the bow tree uh, mapping this practice out and putting it together, the linchpin was it, his expression, aha, I see you, Myra, which means, aha, I can see that unwholesome thought finally in the mind. I can see it as dukkha for dukkha. That's the point, is, is that I can see this is an unwholesome thought. That's profound is to say, yes, I can be on guard because I can tell the difference between what thoughts are wholesome and what thoughts are unwholesome. I've got at least that much of a moral compass. But as our compass becomes more accurate, we begin to understand that some things that I used to think were okay are now I see is just junk thoughts, not worth really having. Why? Because they really don't keep me in that state of great joy and great pleasure and complete relaxation. Their junk thoughts keep me in a junk state of mind. Okay, so basically it's not a matter of how deeply we investigate dukkha. It's matter, much more of a matter of how easily and quickly we can catch it for what it is. To see what it is directly and easily, and then make the change to come out of that hindrance, to be free from that hindrance, to walk into that hotel room, set that luggage down, lay down on the bed with a great big sigh. <sighs> or the feeling of paying off that mortgage and burning that mortgage paper. That's the way that we want to feel, a sense of relief. And that relief from, that, um, from those hindrances is a big part of what the first jhana is about, is that seclusion from the hindrances is such a relief to be free from them. Then, and that's where... We only need a spark of gladdening the mind to set a fire that satisfaction. Because the real satisfaction comes from the, the finishing the, suit, uh, the hindrance. Finishing the journey and finally making it home. 
So you can imagine walking into your house and setting that luggage down and plopping down on the uh, on the couch and relax. <sighs> Glad I'm home. Okay. That feeling then is to be cultivated. To have that feeling of complete relaxation and complete freedom and everything. I'm so glad I'm off of that journey now. I'm so glad that that journey is over. And this is what gives us then that experience of I can do this. Not that I can go out and make a journey, but that I can feel relieved when I stop the journey. That's what we become pleased with. My, how nice I feel. Isn't this really great? Look what I've been able to talk myself into. <laughs> and so this is that state then that is referred to as first jhana. And it is a comfortable place. It's got sukha. It's got pity built right into it. And it's part of the practice. And that it in, in and of itself is not suffering. Now let's contrast that for a moment, or five, with the Mahasi method that you mentioned. Because the Mahasi method doesn't have this quality of the removal of the hindrances quite so strongly built in that in fact if you could say it this way they're more following the Satipatthana Sutta than they are following the Anapanasati Sutta to where in fact the Buddha specifically said that this is the Anapanasati Sutta is practice this is my method to practice for the fulfillment of the Satipatthana and so in many ways, people are then missing out on uh, important things in the Satipatthana Sutta, but in fact, the, the key points are buried there, but they're buried deep into the Sutta in the sense that the five hindrances are part of the Dhammanupasana uh, in the sense of mind objects. So one of the kinds of mind objects that you can have would be the hindrances. And it does say that when you have a mind object of the hindrance, to throw it out. Right. But it's already spent, you know, five or ten pages or more talking about uh, other aspects of the Satipatthana without ever mentioning this number one point is, is that these, these uh, hindering thoughts have to be eradicated, they have to be left, they have to be thrown out. The next part of the Satipatthana Sutta, which is actually, the, we're talking about it right at the end of the Sutta, and is, there's two versions of it. One is in the Dinganakaya, uh, I think it's number 22, the Maha Satipatthana Sutta, and then the ordinary Satipatthana Sutta is in the um, Majjhima number 10. The difference between them is very remote or very small uh, and consists of the Four Noble Truths being greatly expanded in the Dinganakaya. It's like they took the Majjhimakaya's uh, version of the, uh, and then added a whole half more section 
for uh, the Four Noble Truths that only get a, a passing in uh, the uh, Majjhima Nikaya uh, Satipatthana Sutta. So, here, after the hindrances are removed, now the objects of the mind that we're going to start paying attention to, the first one on the list is, in fact, the five aggregates. To pay attention to the five aggregates, which the five aggregates is just nothing more than the four foundations of mindfulness anyway, except that we're taking the mind and instead of dividing it as the mind uh, states and the mind's objects, here we're dividing it as uh, consciousness, perception, and our memory system. So that we use our memory system and our perception in order to understand things that we see. All right? But right. there is really no self in any of that that the entire teaching of the five aggregates over and over and over again throughout the suttas, including sutta number 22 that I mentioned before, is all about the five aggregates being no self. There is no self in the body. The body is going, you can't change the body. You can't make it old or new or young or beautiful. The body is just the body. And yet many people are under the delusion that, yes, they can. They can go on a diet and they can put on lipstick and they can go to the gym and this is my body. And they always wind up disappointed because it doesn't go fast enough. The diet doesn't go fast enough. Two years is not enough for a diet. We need it in three months, two months. Let me stop eating today and lose 100 pounds tomorrow. You know, this is the mentality that we have. We, but the reality is, is that we don't have very much control over the body. Even Jesus said that at one time, that your stature cannot be changed even a whit, even a quarter inch. You can't change how tall you are. So I, I have a question about how this relates to Anapanasati. Is seeing no self in the body, is that step number four of Anapanasati? Well, actually, what we're getting around to, and let's make short of it, that um, in the Satipatthana Sutta is making the distinction between what kind of thoughts are wholesome and what kind of thoughts are not wholesome. The hindrances are not wholesome. Let's throw them out and then, hint, and then thoughts that are, are wholesome are the ones that we want to have remaining in, including thoughts about the five aggregates, being not self. I am not the body. I am not the feelings. I am not the mind. And we investigate that and we look at it, and that would be a Dhamma Nupassana object to look at. Another one would be the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths, in fact, of the Buddha is wholesome thought. When we're thinking about the Four Noble Truths, we're thinking about Dukkha and Dukkha Naroda, getting out of it. Okay? These are the wholesome, worthwhile thoughts to have is thoughts about the Dukkha. When we recognize that, we recognize, wait a minute, this is in fact the way my path for the rest of my life is going to be devoted more and more to this Buddha Dhamma, that I will be spending my thoughts not just now, but for that's all that's worth thinking about because anything that's not dharma is suffering 
Dukkha Naroda is what we're looking for. And the way to do that is by having wholesome thoughts. And the wholesome thoughts are the Dhamma itself. And then in another sutta, the Buddha talks about that uh, contemplation of the Four Noble Truths is what leads to the knowledge of the deliverance of uh, personality view and doubt and our attachments to the world. So by thinking about the Four Noble Truths and thinking about the Five Aggregates is very, very wholesome way of spending our idle thoughts. Is just mulling over the Four Noble Truths over and over again. Thinking about, applying in the sense of investigation. Am I actually seeing that there is no self in all of my memories or do I see that all of my memory collection is who I really am? The answer is no, because I forget. <laughs> I don't remember things. And some things I cook things up manufacture things and then think that it really happened when in fact I've got solid hard evidence that no it didn't happen I made that up (laughs) and so we recognize wait a minute memory is not a good measure of who I am right so we begin to recognize everything is fluid and if everything is fluid then who i am is also fluid and therefore there is no fixed self there is no fixed me everything is subject to change there is no hardcore self in there anywhere everything is a matter of process and we begin to look at that and notice that on a regular basis this is wholesome thinking is to start paying attention to it to think about the Dhamma. So, the Satipatthana Sutta, the end of it, in the mind's objects, uh, ends in a contrast between hindrances that should be eradicated versus Dhamma, the five aggregates, uh, also the seven factors of enlightenment is mentioned in the uh, but in the Anapanasati Sutta, only the seven factors of enlightenment are the ones who are dwelt upon to where the Satipatthana Sutta does that and the four uh, noble truths, including the Eightfold Noble Path. Okay. So there is a relationship between the Eightfold Noble Path and the seven factors of enlightenment in the sense that the the Eightfold Noble Path are skills to be developed, skills that we need, skills of sati, skills of right effort, skills of um, uh, developing right attitude, to where the Sambhojana is the fulfillment of those skills, so that now our sati is unremitting. It comes back just when we need it investigation we're always investigating we're always looking at the dhamma we're always seeing things from a wholesome place uh unremitting um effort is no effort at all and now things are really easy you could even use the word energy that we've got unremitting uh life force or uh, uh pleasant attitude i guess 
And with that comes unremitting joy, sukha. It's there. But along with that also comes relaxation, unremitting relaxed. And so these are the, uh, the factors of uh, enlightenment that we develop as skills in the Four Noble Truths. Going back to the Mahasi method, though, the key ingredient is to throw out these hindrances as soon as we get it. And as soon as we see these hindrances and start throwing them out, the easier it is to develop the skill to throw out the hindrances, the quicker we can catch them and the less harm they've done while they were there and not getting caught. But if you're not dwelling on uh, getting rid of the hindrances and just doing the noting, that means that the student has to come to that conclusion on his own eventually of, wait a minute, this stuff is so painful and it's so dangerous let me start getting rid of it when it's little before it gets this painful. Mm. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Okay. And so this is why um, uh, the 16 stages of insight, part of the Mahasi method, uh, has often been in Western Buddhism referred to as the dark night of the soul. Of about how much dukkha is enough dukkha <laughs> Before we finally say, all right, this is dukkha. Let me get rid of this stuff. Finally, I see it. Okay. And so uh, the distinction then between the Mahasi method and the Anapanasati method would be, let's see it quickly. Let's not dig into it. Let's avoid it. In other words, we don't have to crawl into the fire to know that fire is hot. <laughs> we, can feel the war we can feel the warmth from 10 feet away. We do not have to walk into the fire. Right. Yeah. But the Mahasi not. method is go get yourself fully, fully roasted, and then you'll know what dukkha is, and now you'll stay away from the fire. I see. <laughs> that makes sense. That, make, that perfectly fits my, the experience. And so in that regard, the Mahasi method does work because some guys have gotten themselves really, really burned and now they're quite happy. Thank you. <laughs> so uh, I have a couple questions about everything we just went over, just for a clarification. So, um, so the, the, it's, it sounds like the, the, these are, you're giving me things to um, investigate sort of as a, for a, a more insight practice that might just be like a designation that's more common in the west than in the east ah yes let's look at that word insight for just a moment okay let's insight then is the insight into what is wholesome and what is unwholesome is the only insight you need but because unwholesome comes in a variety of forms and a variety of degrees, we have to practice the insight. But once we get it, then we can recognize any kind of dukkha as dukkha. That mm -hmm. I get it. I know now the difference between suffering and non-suffering. I got it finally. Okay. So that's the only real one insight that's needed. Okay. It, Right. Let's let's understand that fire is hot from twenty feet away. Let's not have to go crawl into it to know that it's hot. 
that's the that's the only insight that we need. But the way that people have been practicing their whole life is they'll go walk into the fire from the west and then they'll say, no, I got to go do this differently. And they'll go walk into the fire from the east. And then they say, wait a minute, this is still hot. Let me go around to the other side of this and attack it from the south. And all I get hot by walking into the fire from the south. Okay. And that's what you would say would be the Mahasi method is let's try every possibility to see if there's a cool spot in that fire. The answer is no, we have to stay out of the fire. We have to stay out of those those unwholesome states, just like we were talking about very early in Sutta number 22, is that many people cannot see obstructions as obstructions yet. They say, well, what's wrong with just having the mind just wander away and, and, and everything? The answer is because you're not brilliantly happy when you're living, it just wander away. Quite morbid, in fact. (laughs) And so that's the insight that I wanted to address to you. The insight is to be able to see dukkha as dukkha. Now, in the Mahasi method, that means one insight after another, after another, from the south, from the north, from the west, from the east. Over and over and over again, I keep having to walk into the fire, walk into the dukkha and see, yep, that's dukkha too. How much dukkha do we have to do before we recognize deeper and deeper into the fire we go that, wait a minute, the answer is to get out of the fire. That's the insight, is that hindrances have to be seen as hindrances and thrown out. And my, what a relief it is when we do. And you have now experienced that directly in your practice. Yes, I have. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so in that regard, the way that practice that now I'm not saying anything that's that's really wrong with Mahasi because I didn't know Mahasi nor what he taught. But what I have come to see is what Westerners have picked up with it and done with it is missing that key ingredient. I see. And that key ingredient is, is that the hindrances have to be thrown out. They have to be removed. Mm-hmm. And the sooner, the better. And the longer, the better. <laughs> yeah, that's like the, I mean, the the four right efforts, right? Mm-hmm. Basically, gladden the mind, keep it gladdened, get rid of the bad, unwholesome thoughts, keep them out, abandon them. Exactly so. That's absolutely Anapanasati. Those are the right four efforts is is to um, cultivate wholesome thoughts and maintain wholesome thoughts and have the insight to see what's unwholesome and kick it out quickly and don't let it back in. This is also what we call guarding the mind. And so we keep speaking about these things in all these various frames of reference, hoping that the student will finally click on one and say, got it. Mm-hmm. But really, the Dhamma is very small. It's very succinct. It's, I mean, it's really basically down to suffering and no suffering. Your choice. And so the question would be for the for the Mahasi student is, how much suffering do you have to put yourself through before you see suffering as suffering? And the answer is a long time. 
But the question then for the Anapanasati Sutta is exactly the same question. How long did it take you to see suffering is suffering? And the answer is, right away, boss. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> I'm on it. And so that leads you to the, to the slow easy as opposed to the slow hard. Because these are going to take a while. But you don't have to go through dark nights of the soul. You don't have to uh, uh, keep burning yourself over and over again. You can now remember to just step right out of that fire. Or don't go near it anymore. Right. Catch it coming and don't step in it. Okay. So then the uh, uh, basically... The, the alternative to what the West calls... So, I mean, it seems like there's a clear delineation in the West between the Samadhi practice and the um, Vipassana practice, where they, you know, they say it's, it's either the... You're either practicing the, the Sukha and the relaxation or you're practicing the insight. And so what I'm hearing from you is that they're not so different because the insight is the Samadhi, in a sense. Yes, yes, number one. Number two is that whenever you hear people practicing samatha or jhana meditation, they almost always are talking about the higher jhanas. And they don't put emphasis on that first jhana, which has these five factors to it. And yet, and that, that was the mistake that the Buddha was making also was to go deeper and deeper and deeper into some jhana state. That when you come out of the jhana, you're back into the ordinary world again of of dukkha. So why not just spend all of our time in jhana? But every student that I've ever talked to, when I talk to them about that, I says, do you want to sit in a cave the rest of your life? Because that's the only enlightenment you're going to get. That doesn't sound very fun. All right, all right. So let's go find a different way of doing it then. And yeah. that is, let's not go into those really deep jhana states that we can't um, maintain without going into a cave. And let's get the, the job done that the Buddha has finally figured out that we don't have to go that far, that there's a middle path here. And the middle path is, is to get the mind bright and shiny, to get it free from hindrances, to get it fit for work, get it to guard the mind, to keep the hindrances out, and to keep good, wholesome thoughts in. That's the first jhana, and once you have that, what else do you need? Cool. That the, the, the problem I see with the, with the higher jhanas is, is that the students who want those higher jhanas actually don't really get a good dose of first jhana. If they got a really good dose of it, they would recognize that, hey, this has got the dual advantage of being both in a really, really sweet spot and capable of functionality. That in those higher jhanas, people become unfunctional. So their idea is to either check out all the way and be non-functional or to be functional but back into hindrances and back into judgments and back into bad feelings and back that. And so they will make then the choice. Well, I'd rather be way over there. And they're missing this sweet spot in the middle. 
And if they work really, really hard to get themselves into jhana, basically they're just going to get themselves into a trance or a stupor. And they mistake that trance or stupor for jhana. Yeah. Yeah, that that makes sense. I remember, um, you know, trying to do some jhana guided meditations. And I thought to myself, how will I know if I'm in it versus in a some type of trance that feels good? I don't know. Well, that's the point is, is that in some cases it is. But with the um, practice of Anapanasati, the waking up, uh, those states of jhana can be uh, attained, but you know it now because you're watching what's going on. And we can talk a little bit more about that at a later time. I <laughs> can't teach you everything today. Okay, yeah. But, um, yeah, there are... Um, the real jhana is when the mind is really, really super sharp and you can see things that you couldn't see in ordinary ways. To where most people think of jhana and what they practice through the Mahasi method or other things actually is going really deep in the sense of being in a stupor or being in a trance or not being awake or aware of what's going on. Okay. Out of it. Okay. And uh, that's not not good jhana because it doesn't have all the factors of jhana. But the important point is, is that we don't need those very high states. Maybe occasionally, maybe as a toy to play with, maybe when you got nothing better to do, then we'll go do some jhana. But we really, what we want is that state of well-being, that state of uh, right attitude and right sati that winds up in those um, factors of the first jhana that are also so vital to the factors of enlightenment. Okay, makes sense. State of, state of pleasure, right. Very, very pleasurable is what we're looking for. Immediately, though, not looking for it, hoping that if I do this, that, and the other thing, then two years from now I'll have pleasure. But right. no. We're looking forward and we find it right here. This is it. Just relax into it. I like the analogy of walking, finding into that hotel room after all of that travel and walking into that hotel room and setting all of that baggage down and uh, relax. So I'm glad you're getting some practice in, practicing that, getting yourself a state of well-being, nourishing. I'm using the terminology nourishing as opposed to critical that we've been spending our whole lives. So out on the journey, out on the plane, in the airports and all of that was being critical. Got to make a lot of judgments. Got to look here. Got to watch the bags. Got all this stuff to do. Now that we're in the room, we can find a relax. Shut the door, set the bags down, take a load off, and that's the way that we want to live our lives, as if we were just finished a major hurdle, a big journey. And now yeah. there's nothing to do, nothing to say, and no place to go, and everything is okay. <laughs>
So go play. Go play with that. Okay, I will. How how often should I call you? Whenever you want to. Okay, that works. Yeah, <laughs> once a week or so, something like that. I'm really glad to see you again. It's been a yeah, while. I'm glad to see you too. Yeah, I uh, I think it was good for me to spend some time just t trying all this stuff out, just to you know put what you taught me into into practice. Yeah. Good. I'm glad you did. Yeah. Now you know. Now I know. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And now you've heard from me some theoretical stuff behind it as to why it's like that, but you right. already knew everything that I told you today in the sense of your own experience. It's like when I say that, you say, yeah, that's exactly right. Right. I've been there, done that. I know what he's talking. <laughs> okay, Julian, we'll, we'll see you. All right. I'll see you later, Damarazo. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.